The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn the rules over you, simply find out that you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and today it's time for our Thursday show with Dr. Peter Hammond, so let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am with you, yes. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And we're going to be doing part two, or Peter is, he's been putting a hell of a lot, sorry, a tremendous amount of work, rather, into this show entitled The Real Story of South Africa's Greatest Prime Minister, Hendrik Vorwood, and Why He Was Assassinated, Part 2. So, Peter, we had Part 1 last week. Very interesting, as always. Where would you like to start us off with Part 2 today? Well, it's interesting. There's a section in this book by Stephen Mitford Goodson on Field Marshal Viscount Bernard Montgomery of Alamein. My father served all six years in the Second World War as a Bombardier and Royal Artillery, most of the time under Montgomery in the 8th Army, not only in North Africa, but also in Italy. And uh, Hendrik Wood uh, received Field Marshal Montgomery in 1947 uh, in South Africa. And interesting, Field Marshal Montgomery was a regular guest of Hendrik Wood as Prime Minister, including at Kurtaskur, which is the, the house that Cecil Rhodes built. Cecil Rhodes, when he was Prime Minister of the Cape, did not take a salary, but he left um, a whole lot of gifts to the people of the country, including a magnificent estate he built. In fact, he built this lovely home. He, he never was a luxurious person, but Cecil Rhodes uh, hoped to host Queen Victoria out here, and so he built a magnificent place that could um, host even the Queen, and he donated this estate to future leaders of the Cape of Good Hope, um, future prime ministers. So uh, Hendrik Favut invited um, Field Marshal Montgomery a number of times to special suppers at the Krutuskir Estate, which is a magnificent place. I've been there. And uh, it, it really is one of the most beautiful um, estates that you can have in South Africa. Uh, Cecil Rhodes really had an eye for the future. And uh, the interesting thing about Field Marshal Montgomery's observations is 1947, with the British Empire collapsing, with the Cold War increasing, with the Soviet Union and Red China on the march, and with more and more African countries toppling to dictatorships and coup d'etats and revolutions and Marxist revolution, terrorism moving south. He came up with a top-secret master plan based on the need to inject large numbers of white men uh, into Africa 
to help bolster the colonies to serve as a bulwark against the expansion of communism. And in this, he saw that South Africa was key. And so his idea was the Union of South Africa would take the lead in uniting countries all over Africa to resist communism and to win the Cold War by resisting communist terrorism. And Montgomery's plans, uh, he brought back to Britain after traveling all over Africa and doing research, speaking to leaders. Montgomery's plans were rejected by the Labour governments of Britain at the time, who had their own plans for selling out these territories to the international bankers. And uh, Montgomery said, it is obvious we disagree. Time will tell which one of us is right. And of course, time has told which one was right, and the Labour government was certainly wrong. Well, in November 1959, Field Marshal Montgomery visited South Africa, um, and he came to give the lie to the many things which are being said about what's going on in the country. So he did research, and he reported back that Henry Kubut was a wonderful, obviously sincere man, quite spoken kindly. He impressed me as a leader, a man of decision and of action. And uh, he said he had the highest regard and admiration for Dr. Vavut. Uh, so Field Marshal Montgomery was also very positive towards Rhodesia. He visited Rhodesia at that time, too. Um, interesting, my father made the comment that uh, uh, Field Marshal Montgomery had a picture, a portrait in a frame of, of Field Marshal Irwin Rommel on his bedside table. Um, and I thought that was an interesting comment. But, you know, it's sort of thing you don't forget, but you sort of wonder, um, you know, is that true? My dad told me, and um, I had no reason to question it, except that it sounded kind of strange. Well, in 2004, I was invited to speak at a conference in England on the 100th anniversary of the First World War. And uh, I went to the Imperial War Museum, and aside from magnificent new exhibits on the lower floor on the First World War, um, there was on the second floor uh, some things about the 8th Army and North African Desert. And would you believe it, there in the Imperial War Museum in London was a reconstruction of the tent, uh, the bed, the desk of uh, Field Marshal Montgomery. And there, very plain to see, was a portrait on a stand of uh, Erwin Rommel, the German Africa Corps leader, on Montgomery's bedside table. So just confirming what my father said to me years before. And uh, interesting that Field Marshal Montgomery understood the threat to Africa. I mean, he had spent a lot of his time fighting in Africa, the threat to Africa of communism, and that the Union of South Africa was the best bulwark against that. And he was deeply concerned that the international bankers were betraying South Africa and that South Africa and Southern Rhodesia were absolutely critical to saving Africa from communism. And he warned the people of Britain and British Parliament about it, and they ignored him. He is a wartime hero of Britain who had insights, which time has vindicated, um, but interesting how he was dismissed at the time because what he said was politically incorrect. Well, here's another interesting insight that Stephen Mitford Goodson's books are always packed with fascinating information you wouldn't know any other way, any other place. Here's another thing where he talks about um, Favut's clashes with the Jews. That's a, a subtitle. And that on 11th of November, 11th of October, 1961, in the United Nations, the State of Israel cast a vote of censure against Foreign Minister, South Africa's Foreign Minister, Eric Lowe's speech, in which he had defended South Africa's policy of separate development. And so the... Um, the State of Israel cast a vote against South Africa. And so at that point, Dr. Vavut 
decided to reply that South Africa had always felt a feeling of sympathy for Israel and the general preparedness to cooperate was noticeable in South Africa amongst all sections. He was concerned by the hypocrisy of Israel and he raised the question, why if Israel and its rabbis feel impelled to attack the policy of separate development here while they are maintaining a policy of separate developments in Israel itself, how can it be right in Israel and wrong in South Africa? And he said it's a tragedy for the Jew, Jewish people in South Africa uh, that um, their erstwhile leaders in the state of Israel were um, attacking a country which was protecting Jews in Africa uh, from no doubt mistreatment that would come if they fell, uh, considering the advancing of revolution throughout Africa. So he then noted that many Jews in South Africa voted for the Progressive Party and not for the National Party in the recent general elections. And uh, he was questioning why is it that Jewish people um, tend to support left-wing and even in many cases communist causes and not the nationalist causes. And why would they want to attack South Africa publicly, internationally? And uh, bearing in mind, South Africans played a very key role in the West, Western Desert Force and fighting in North Africa under Montgomery, for example. And uh, at this point, he said, South Africans do not want to oppress, but it is correct we want to differentiate and we want to separate where there are fundamental differences, whether this is symbolized by color or not. For this reason, we believe in a separate state of Israel but now we begin to wonder whether our support should be withdrawn if, according to their own convictions, the ideal of separate development is fundamentally wrong. So Henry Wood basically threw down the gauntlet and challenged them. And then, interestingly, um, he had a delegation of Jewish people in South Africa come to him to try and distance themselves from what the State of Israel had done at the UN. The following year, Israel voted again against South Africa at the UN, and the South African Jewish Board of Deputies issued a statement deploring the State of Israel's stand and affirming its loyalty to South Africa. And in August 66, a delegation of Jews had an appointment with Dr. Mavut, and they were quite animated, and the conversation was quite long, and a, a reportedly a somewhat dejected group exited Dr. Mavut's offices after they failed in their objective to persuade Dr. Mavut to change his policies. Apparently, they were trying to persuade him to abandon the separate development policies. Well, in January 1962, South Africa gave independence to Transkei, uh, self-government, I should say first, and Chief Kazim Tanzima um, said, to the people of Transkei, the Prime Minister's statement is highly welcomed, received with great excitement. He said, white liberals are not sincere. The white liberals try to mislead us. They purpose to keep us down so that we will never rise. And uh, interesting um, that uh, there were also quite a few black leaders making statements like Chief Kaiser uh, of Transka said that uh, the um, racial conflict between blacks and whites in Britain and in the United States shows that if people can be kept separate and have their own administrations, the relationships will be better. Good fences make good neighbors. And he said, Dr. Vavut is the greatest leader who's ever merged in uh, South Africa. And interesting that he had that view. Well, um, South Africa was battling at this time a lot of different attacks. 
uh, especially over the fact it was ruling Southwest Africa, which South Africa had conquered in the First World War and been awarded by the League of Nations. And when the United Nations tried to take it away, they pointed out, well, we got this from the League of Nations, not the United Nations. You're not the successor. You don't have any continuity. You've got no legal rights. Southwest Africa is ours by conquest and uh, also by international law. And uh, so this whole thing came before uh, international court. Interesting that uh, South Africa's track record in Southwest Africa was absolutely superb in what they did to lift up the people, but they were attacked so much. Um, at The Hague, Ethiopia and Liberia acted as frontmen for international bankers to bring a case against South Africa in the International Court of Justice in The Hague. And the arguments were quite pathetic. Um, and uh, in resisting this, Dr. Favut um, reported that this is particularly pathetic that Ethiopia is a plaintiff on an area that they've got no personal interest in. And you remind them that in May 1941, the first South African division of the South African Army, led by Major General Brink, was responsible for the liberation of Ethiopia from the Italians. It was South African soldiers, Springboks, who liberated Abyssinia, what now is called Ethiopia, from Italian occupation. And Ethiopia doesn't seem to have any gratitude for that. And Ethiopia has become one of the most impoverished countries in the world with a literacy rate less than 7%. There's public hangings regularly, rampant slavery and corruption, a third of the national budget stolen by public officials. And you know, here they are talking about human rights in Southwest Africa, which they have no knowledge of, no interest in. And uh, their very independence is thanks to South African soldiers who fought to achieve that. As far as Liberia goes, he pointed out that they were an oligarchy of 12,000 former American Negroes who were lording it over the hapless inhabitants of 1.2 million Liberians who had no civil rights, who were, didn't even have the right to hold office or to vote, because you had to be an, uh, a Negro of American descent to have political rights in Liberia, which was basically an American Negro colony where they were oppressing the indigenous Africans. And uh, so he pointed out uh, what a hypocrisy of Liberia and Ethiopia trying to bring charges against South Africa to international court. And then he proposed, he brought up the Odendale Commission, which had looked at the future of Southwest Africa, and uh, that South Africa was putting more money into developing Southwest Africa than all of Europe was putting into the rest of Africa combined. And uh, we won that case in The Hague, even though the Secretive Council on Foreign Relations, the CFR, were um, behind the attacks and they were trying to undermine uh, South Africa and our position there. And the Bilderbergers, the Trilateral Commission, Council of Foreign Relations were all involved in the campaign to try and steal Southwest Africa from South Africa. Now, bear in mind, Southwest Africa is one of the most mineral-rich countries in the world. Uh, platinum, uranium, diamonds, so much. It, it's um, a very mineral-rich country. And so you can understand why they were targeting South Africa to to steal Southwest Africa from us. Um, lots of interesting exposés here. Then comes up the Ravonia trial, which happened in 1963, while Favut was Prime Minister. The security police raided the headquarters of Nkuntuwi Sisri, the Asagai of the people, or the Spear of the Nation, the terrorist wing of the African National Congress, under control of the Southern Communist Party. And they arrested a whole lot of uh, people, including Nelson Mandela, and they found the documents on Operation Maibuyu, 
which was a plan of 7,000 well-armed terrorists brought in by air and ship to invade the Cape Province, Natal, and Transvaal. Um, this Operation Maibu included 48,000 anti-personnel mines, 210,000 hand grenades, 1,500 timing devices for explosives, 144 tons of ammonium nitrate, 21 tons of aluminium powder, one ton of black powder, enough munitions for six months period, enough to blow up the whole of Johannesburg, said the chief prosecutor. Um, they, they had a plan of a 30-day attack, and uh, there was also a Carnegie Endowment for International Peace report that came out about the same time to coincide with Operation Maibu, where the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace planned for a United Nations force of 30,000 assault troops, 60,000 reservists, 3,000 air assault forces, that's paratroopers, 60 warships, 300 fighter planes, 45 attack transports, 35 support vessels to invade South Africa in a six-month air naval blockade uh, costing about $165 million with a 30-day battle to take South Africa and they estimate that their casualties could be about 500. That's according to their reports, of course. Um, the chances are that it would have cost a lot more in terms of both money and personnel lost. The South African army was quite substantial. Well, the people arrested at Operation Mayabu at the Ravonia trial included people like Govan Becky, uh, Dennis Goldberg, Arthur Goldrich, uh, Hilliard Festenstein, um, Harold Wallop, James Cantor, Bob Heppel, Lionel Bernstein. Now, these are all, all the so-called white people on trial were, were Jewish, um, and they were, they were communists, all of them. And uh, yet, when you get the Mandela Long Walk to Freedom film, there's not a single white on trial. Um, it's all black people on trial, and uh, all the prosecutors are, are white. And so it's, it's, you know, they don't want to confuse people. Whites are bad, and, and blacks are good, and, and innocent victims. But historically here, showing that the whites involved in the ANC from the beginning were Jewish communists, many of them actually from Russia itself. And uh, the report here of Stephen Goodson is Jewish people consistently played a prominent role in almost all revolutions and wars since the 1640s, and especially in the South African Communist Party. They dominated the landscape. The defense team of the uh, ANC terrorists are being tried for treason at uh, or sabotage, actually. Was, they should have been tried for treason. They were actually tried for sabotage, which was a lesser charge at uh, the Ravonia trials. Uh, their chief advocate was Brom Fisser, a Rhodes Scholar, who was responsible for writing Mandela's three-hour speech, which he read from the dock on the 20th of April, 1964. Um, Brom Fisser was a Southern Communist Party member as well, and he was their chief defense attorney. Um, they were all found guilty of sabotage, including Mandela. And um, Mandela was already serving a five-year term of imprisonment and then he was sentenced to life, although everyone expected him to get the death penalty at the time. And the uh, the judge, uh, Judge Cortes de Vet, was praised even in the leftist newspapers like uh, The Star for his light sentence of only sentencing them to life imprisonment because everyone expected the death penalty because... It was effectively treason they were being tried on, which held the death penalty, but they were being given a lesser charge of sabotage and 
people had been killed, including some grandmother and her granddaughter being incinerated by a petrol bomb, a suitcase bomb in Johannesburg Central Station and other terrorist attacks that were part of this whole Operation Maibu. So Mandela uh, got life imprisonment. And uh, at the time, Dr. Favot said, these people are criminals, communist criminals. When it is said that some circles are glad that Mandela only received a life sentence, not the death penalty, because he may later, like Kenyatta, become leader of the future, then I say, God forbid it. And uh, so Favut could see that this could be a real problem for the future to leave a um, an icon uh, who's also a, um, a tool uh, of the international bankers, a puppet of the international bankers, um, to use the terms given the book, um, as a possible future leader of the country. Uh, he could see that that would be disastrous. So at about this interesting time, um, South Africa got a whole lot of in, um, visits from foreign ministers, such as from Scandinavian countries, foreign ministers of Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, and Sweden, came to visit South Africa, although at South Africa's expense, they invited themselves, and uh, they were given freedom to see whatever they wanted, and for what says, we've got nothing we're ashamed of, nothing to hide, and uh, they came and the goal, of course, was to judge South Africa's foreign policy without first-hand knowledge. Uh, but um, interesting that some of the reports only vindicated what Dr. Wood was saying. Uh, also, Harold Wilson, who was Prime Minister in Britain at the time, um, brought about a full arms boycott on South Africa, that uh, South Africa would not be able to buy the Buccaneer bombers and other kinds of uh, weaponry that they had hoped to, and that um, Harold Wilson said he would terminate the Simonstown Naval Agreement. Well, Simonstown was Britain's most valuable uh, naval base in the Southern Hemisphere, and so Britain lost a lot more by that than South Africa did. In fact, interesting, during the Falklands War in the 80s, Britain again wanted access to the Simonstown Naval Facility, which would really help them for projecting their strength towards the Falklands, and uh, South Africa at that time said no. Um, in fact, Argentina is a friend and there's no reason for us to aggravate our friends. And after all, you are putting full armed sanctions on us at this time. It wouldn't be appropriate. Now, uh, Henrik Wood also appointed a judicial commission to investigate the influence and activities of secret organizations such as the Freemasons, the Brudebont and Sons of England to determine if they were a danger to the peace or to the state. The United States government continually tried to embarrass Dr. Wood when he was Prime Minister. Uh, for example, they sent the aircraft carrier USS Independence to take on fuel at Cape Town Harbour and requested that Negro sailors be permitted to take shore leave and Negro members of the air crews be allowed to land on local airfields. And Dr. Wood considers request to be a provocation and a political uh, statement, so he denied permission for the US carrier to dock in Cape Town and had to refuel in mid-ocean at great expense to the US Navy. Um, Dr. Foote pointed out that he wouldn't tolerate American interference in the internal affairs of South Africa, and he had had to expel several of the diplomats already for misbehaving themselves. He also pointed out that his view on separate development was not unusual because in 1951, when the United States Navy set up a naval station at 
uh, Keflavik in Iceland, the Icelandic government insisted that no Negroes be stationed on the island as they wanted to retain the homogeneity of their Celtic Nordic forebears and they wanted to protect their gene pool and they were deeply concerned about uh, the undermining of morals which had taken place in Britain with um, Negro American soldiers and airmen who were uh, stationed there during the Second World War. And so Iceland said, no, we're not going to allow this kind of race mixing on the island. And that was roughly the same time that, that South Africa was saying no to the USS independence coming to try and embarrass South Africa's separate development policy uh, in our country. At the same time, we were having sports boycotts, all kinds of sports boycotts, um, South African Springbok rugby team touring New Zealand and um, next thing the New Zealanders wanting to send Maoris to South Africa uh, on an exchange team. And Henrik Wirt said, when we visit you, we respect your customs. When you visit us, we expect you to abide by our traditions and norms, which include separate teams for separate races. And so um, he wouldn't yield on matters of principle. And he was depicted in cartoons as a man of granite. He pointed out that the Federation of Central Africa, Rhodesia, Southern Rhodesia, Northern Rhodesia, what now Zambia and Nyasaland, which is Malawi, they made lots of small concessions and ultimately the whole federation crumbled as a result. And he said that in Africa we've got to protect ourselves or we could lose everything. And when Rhodesia declared its independence on 11th of November 1965, Favut made a speech saying South Africa would not participate in any sanctions or any boycotts that would continue to trade with both Britain and Rhodesia. And he also warned Rhodesia that he saw no chance of Rhodesia's policy of partnership working and that um, it would lead to majority rule and tragedy in time and destruction and chaos. And uh, uh, Stephen Goodson notes that since the year 2000, when over 5,000 white-owned farms were seized by Mugabe's communist government, the size of the economy of the former Rhodesia halved and more than half the population fled the country, the country's facing starvation. 95% unemployment in Zimbabwe, so all of Favut's warnings have been fulfilled there. So Henrik Favut made uh, statements that the United States had adopted a long-term strategy to undermine the government of South Africa, and the goal was to replace it with a regime of puppets that their bankers could manipulate. So in January 1958, the Council on Foreign Relations set up the United States-South Africa Leadership Exchange Program, and it was run from the officers of the African-American Institute, which was notorious for having instigated the Sharpeville riots. So this leadership exchange program was an exchange program for the United States and South Africa, uh, particularly trying to get journalists to go and study in America. And Hendrik Wood pointed out how uh, 53 South African journalists were sent to the United States as Neiman Fellows. And these journalists were trained in how to brainwash the Africana back in South Africa in the tenets of liberalism and to ultimately condition them to accept the dictates of the New World Order, particularly the globalist goal of a, a multicultural, a one-party, one-man, one-vote type election. Some of the key figures which served on the South African committee of this um, America-South Africa exchange program was Dr. Anton Rupert, chairman of the Rembrandt Tobacco Corporation. And by the way, just driving down the road in the last week, I've seen there is the, the Rupert... Rothschild estate, 
both the Rothschilds and the Ruperts, they are somehow intertwined and they, they share an estate um, um, in the Frontrick area, uh, to a, a wine estate. And um, Mr. de Villiers, the managing director of National Paris or National Publishing, almost all the Afrikaans newspapers in the country are published by National Paris. So their managing director was on this as well. And then uh, Dr. Schumann, vice chairman of South African Atomic Energy Board, Professor Tom, the principal of the University of Stellenbosch, from which most of our prime ministers came. Uh, Dr. Van Eck, chairman of the Industrial Development Corporation, ESCO. And Dr. Vassana, the general manager of Sunlamp, the biggest um, insurance company in the country. So very high-powered people were involved in this U.S.-South Africa um, leadership exchange program, which did a lot to undermine the country by getting some of the most promising young people in the country uh, to America where they could be inculcated with multiculturalism and globalism and the whole propaganda of the secular humanists. So a sister organization of this exchange program was the American Field Service, which is described as a sinister uh, corporation. In fact, our Minister of Defense, P.W. Borta, referred to them in a speech as a place of subversive activities and a tool of the Council on Foreign Relations. And immediately after this, P.W. Borta was threatened and warned uh, that um, in a ferocious manner that he must never mention the Council on Foreign Relations again and will jeopardize his career and his political uh, future. So to point out that the Council on Foreign Relations was involved in subverting South Africa was um, told to our Minister of Defense that he's not allowed to do that. It's main aim of the American Field Service was to identify young boys and girls in our schools who had leadership potential. And then they got special scholarships to inculcate them with liberal ideals. Um, you know, everything from situation ethics to uh, the egalitarianism and globalist culture and goals. So uh, the author of this book, uh, Stephen Mitchell Goodson, was himself put on the list for this um, type of, of scholarship. But um, Fortunately, he did not participate in it. Um, interesting, just as Henrik Wood was at one time given a chance of an Oxford Rhodes Scholarship and uh, his family turned it down. Well, Henrik Wood was known to be someone who strongly stood for South Africa's culture. For example, he was part of establishing the Simon van der Stel Foundation to buy up and restore buildings of historic and aesthetic interest, um, which he did including in Zuland and the Malay Quarter in Cape Town. So it wasn't only Afrikaans culture, it was also the culture of the Malays and of the Zulus. He was a connoisseur of classical music, ballet and opera. He attended classical cultural performances regularly. And what's also interesting is Henry Kavut was an opponent of introducing television to South Africa. And he said publicly as Prime Minister that television is a non-essential service and it would be advantageous to let other countries bear the experimental and development costs. And uh, he said, there's a lot of problems in our country to provide a fair service for all language groups. And he believed television would have an adverse effect on our culture, on church attendance, on sporting events. He said, commercial television leads to lowering of cultural standards, particularly if the programs are imported from the United States. He said, the dangers of a yellow TV developing like the yellow press. He said, American surveys have showed that television advertising raises the cost of living and the cost of goods by about 25%. And TV, in fact, complicates your life and increases the cost of all the services that you're going to buy. 
Interestingly, at this time, while Pavut was being attacked for being backward and not supporting the new technology, Mrs. Margaret Bird, widow of John Loggie Bird, the inventor of television, she came to South Africa and defended South Africa's attitude at a press conference. And she came to South Africa for a five-month visit, praising the South African Broadcasting Corporation as dignified and not impersonal. She said the programs on British TV are too sordid for words. And when she's asked, shouldn't South Africa have television, she said, why? In a lovely country like South Africa, why would you want to sit inside and watch cowboys on television? So, um, Hendrik Favut opposed the idea of bringing TV, saying there'd be unremitting bias in news reports and poor quality of programs devalues the culture and debases the morals of a country. It could lead to racial tension and increase in crime levels and uh, dissatisfaction between races, which has all happened, mind you. Um, Interesting, so South Africa didn't have TV until the 1970s. Um, and sadly, when South Africa got TV in the same year, the Soweto riots broke out and South Africa had non-stop violence from then on. So it would seem that he was right to be cautious about uh, introducing television to the country. Under Hendrik, what South Africa had its greatest economic advances, and uh, he did some phenomenal things like putting the whole country on the electricity grid, lots of hydroelectric power stations. Uh, he built up sassel oil from coal plants, um, which is an amazing technology that we take our coal, which we've got a lot of, and turn it into oil. Um, he expanded the telephone network massively. Um, uh, Atlas Aircraft Corporation, Orange River Scheme, construction of the largest dams in the country, like the Hendrikwood Dam, um, had a massive 5 million megalitres capacity. Uh, hydroelectric power and all the rest of it. Under Hendrik Wood, South Africa reached a stage of being debt-free and having a growth rate of over 8% a year, absolutely staggering. He did lots to develop new game reserves and uh, to ensure conservation and the environment. But in all of this, he came in the increasing attack by the international money power. And so the Harry Oppenheimer power, Harry Oppenheimer was a billionaire running Anglo-American and he is involved in politics too, in opposition against Favut. He established the United South Africa Trust Fund, which had millions of pounds raised in order to defeat uh, the National Party, to defeat particularly Henrik Favut in the 1953 elections. And uh, uh, um, Harry Oppenheimer was a continual threat to Dr. Favut. And he did everything good to industry to undermine what the government was doing and in fact, it's not just a theory because his uh, son later, uh, I think that's Ernst Favut, uh, published an article in 1995, which I remember seeing in the Star newspaper, which is a very leftist newspaper, an op-ed, big full-page piece, 1995, saying this is what we've been campaigning for, Anglo-American and our family have been campaigning for over 30 years to bring down this national party government and to bring in the ANC. So... The theories, which would have been called a conspiracy theory back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that uh, Oppenheimer and Anglo-American were working to undermine our country and sell us out to communism, it's not a conspiracy theory anymore. It was proven to be absolutely true. So in his speeches, Harry Oppenheimer made political points. He discussed policy, tried to exercise political influence. He supported the political party, the opposition, and he tried to steer the country in a political direction way left of what 
the voters in South Africa were going for. So sort of like the George Soros of his time. And uh, it's amazing why they hated Vavot. Uh, but when you look at the facts, you can understand why. He had made the country so economically independent. We had sovereign independence, free from parasitical international bankers and their usurious loans, to quote Stephen Goodson. So a South Afghan Hendrik Vavot was so materially successful, economically successful, such a powerful military force, and it was independent politically. It could not be intimidated or manipulated. And their goal was to get a puppet state that was able to be manipulated by the international bankers and the globalists, which they couldn't have while someone like Vavut was around. Now, at this point, Henrik Vavut commissioned Professor Pete Hook, a professor of economics at the University of Pretoria, um, who is also um, Deputy General Manager for ESCO, um, to commission him to produce a report on the concentration of economic power and the threat to South Africa of um, these monopolies like Anglo-American. And the title of the report was The Excessive Concentration of Capital Production and Market Within the Sphere of Influence of a Single Controlling Group, Its Power to Determine Where a Large Portion of Available Capital Funds of the Private Sector Shall Be Invested and Where the Provision of Work Shall Be and Possible Countermeasures. And this 176-page report was produced by Professor Hook and delivered uh, to Khrushchev to the uh, Prime Minister just before his assassination. Now, we also learn that uh, Hindelwood made a speech on 25th of January 1966 saying, we shall fight the concentrations of power and monopolies which are present in our country and which are a fundamental danger. And he sent shots across the bow of of uh, Oppenheimer a few times like that. And uh, he was well aware of the fraudulent banking monopoly, quote unquote, which creates money out of nothing as a debt and then enslaves everyone through usury and how the system is undermining South Africa. And uh, again, here's another quote from the book. The iniquitous operations of the central banking cartel raises the intriguing prospect. If Dr. Voss had been able to act on this information before he was murdered, he would have reformed the South African Reserve Bank on state banking lines and separate development and its associated freedoms would have succeeded. South Africa would have benefited enormously in perpetuum. Uh, so uh, here's another interesting report. Uh, B.J. Foster, who is then Minister of Police, is supported by the pro subversive pro-communist Harry Oppenheimer, the most powerful billionaire in Africa. And he's supported by the newspapers, the wealthy classes, the Jews and the Negro leaders who have been let in on the plan. The Rockefeller Rothschild Oppenheimer plan is to set up an economic super government over the southern portion of the continent. So there plainly was an understanding. And uh, interestingly enough, shortly after Dr. Wood's assassination, his successor, B.J. Foster, who was part of the assassination conspiracy, warned Professor not to make his report public. And eventually all circulation of the report was forbidden. And uh, interesting that Harry Oppenheimer and B.J. Foster described as having cordial relations. So, Dr. Wood had incredible stamina. He had a prodigious memory, microscopic knowledge. He had great attention to detail and a great intellect. He would make long speeches without any notes needed. Um, and there's an interesting insight to Dr. Wood given by B.J. Foster in his book that in January 1961, as the cabinet met to discuss the implications of South Africa leaving the Commonwealth, 
Dr. Witt asked every cabinet minister to prepare a memo about the ramifications for their departments if such an event took place. And so Dr. Witt asked each minister in order of seniority to uh, deliver their memo. And as they read their memo, um, he would make some notes in his notebook, but he seldom referred to it again. And uh, when everyone had spoken, um, Mr. Foster said that uh, the Prime Minister, Hendrik Witt, went around the room in order and made comments on the members that had been given and then commented that, unfortunately, the Honourable Member's Department failed to include in this memo this and that detail, which were also relevant to the issue. And at the end, he summed up, and uh, Mr. Foster said, we were all awed, and it became obvious that the Prime Minister knew more about each of our departments than we did ourselves. So he had a phenomenal insight and memory. Uh, he was quite a tall man, six foot two inches. His speeches were well prepared, well researched, uh, but he didn't use notes while he was speaking, even though he had notes there if he wanted to. He was fluent in English and in Afrikaans, um, and he knew German quite well. He had studied in Germany too. Um, his, uh, and he would sit in a garden teaching his gardener how to read and write on a Saturday morning. He'd always speak in a calm, serene manner and uh, without any trace of fanaticism or, or extremism. And uh, even when faced with a lot of hostility, he remained very polite and calm. And uh, his secretary said that in something like eight years of working from him, she only once saw mildly irritated. Uh, so he was obviously an extraordinary person. Um, his a wife he met in Germany, Betsy, married her while studying in Germany. Um, and uh, they were an amazing uh, couple and a uh, tremendous amount of uh, hospitality in the home. Uh, interesting what his lifestyle was very modest. Whenever he moved into new offices, very little furnishing would change. He would travel by train for parliamentary sessions in Cape Town. He didn't fly that much. He preferred the train. And uh, he would uh, seek to save the state money on things like that. And... Uh, he would have the custom of greeting all personnel on the train right down to the, um, the engine driver, and he always tended to be a very polite. Um, he would buy his own purchase, his own postage stamps for personal letters. He was very unassuming, uh, loved being in nature. Um, he didn't have many children, um, and uh, he would uh, he would give a dinner party for gardeners and labourers at the um, Prime Minister's residence, and he'd give each one a gift each year. Uh, he had seven children at home. He had no servants at all. They only had servants in, uh, at the uh, official residence. Um, and Hendrik uh, Vought, at age 65, had reached the peak of his career. No one had ever been so powerful, popular, and successful economically in our country's history. And uh, South Africa had never been so rich, so debt-free as it was in 1966. And so there were a lot of people who wanted to get rid of him, particularly the Rothschild banking dynasty. And so there's um, a uh, intriguing expose in the book on how the assassination went about. And basically, uh, it came about the same people who assassinated uh, American President John F. Kennedy uh, were behind this. So it basically came from the CIA, Rothschilds, Oppenheimers, Ruperts, Foster, who was Minister of Police, and Sofundus, 
who is the lone assassin, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald style, who uh, was plainly being manipulated through MK Ultra type of psychiatric care with drugs, and he had been uh, set up to do the assassination. Mr. Fundus was a Communist Party member. He'd been born in Mozambique. He's of mixed race. Uh, he had been uh, manipulated by the same psychiatrist who was also a Communist Party member, as had uh, been treating Pratt, who had shot Hendrik Wood a few years earlier, uh, although I failed to kill him, but he was shot in the face and could have died. Uh, so isn't that amazing? Two assassins had the same uh, psychologist dealing with him and they were on a lot of mind-altering drugs at the time. Now, Safundis was, being a Communist Party member, should have been banned from the country, shouldn't have been allowed in, and yet he had a very privileged position as a messenger in the parliament and able to walk right into parliament during a session, right up the prime minister in his uh, seat. And he stabbed him multiple times in a way that witnesses said he must have been trained in how to use a knife so effectively so that the, the victim could not possibly survive. He went for all the vitals, you know, heart, lungs, um, uh, throat, all that sort of thing, in, in such swift manner that he must have been uh, trained in the techniques of using a knife for an assassination. And uh, extraordinary the cover-ups that came afterwards, because he would have thought a prime minister being assassinated in Parliament would get the highest level of investigation. And yet um, the Minister of Police, who was responsible for safety, B.J. Foster, who became his successor, um, basically uh, did not allow any of the uh, investigation to be made public, did not allow uh, people to attend the investigation that was held in camera, in conference, because it was considered too sensitive. The evidence that is given here in the book by uh, Stephen Mitchell Goodson is that the CIA was heavily involved in this, uh, that um, the orders that come right down from the Rothschilds, the Council of Foreign Relations, uh, basically the, the banksters, and they, they also used Harry Oppenheimer, their main contact within South Africa, and Anton Rupert, who is within the National Party as well, another billionaire in South Africa. And then they were able to give the order straight to the Minister of Police, uh, Foster, who could give the order to his head of state security, boss, Bureau of State Security, Henrik Vandenberg, and uh, they were able to arrange and organize the murder of uh, the Prime Minister. They even chose the exact date that would be on the uh, 9th, sorry, uh, yeah, on the 9th of 1966, at um, uh, the 6th day of the ninth month, 1966, and they wanted the 6s in there, and uh, so they chose a date that was significant to the Sabbateans, uh, occultic-wise, and uh, the murder was done in such in such public, and yet the inquiry was a complete whitewash. 105 witnesses were called, um, but it didn't include some of the most important people involved. There was involvement of, um, for example, this murderer, Tifundus, visited the Greek ship Eleni, while it was docked in Cape Town Harbour for 40 days, almost every day. And uh, that ship was run by Canadian uh, intelligence, and uh, there's a, a whole lot of intriguing connection with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police with that ship. And uh, the international conspiracy to get rid of South Africa's Prime Minister at a key time during the Cold War, while South Africa was leading the fight against communism, very um, disastrous. And the man who took over... B.J. Foster 
was someone who had been a secret police informer for General Smuts during the Anglo during the Second World War, and B.J. Foster had actually been paid thousands of, of pounds for his work there, and he had infiltrated Oswald Brandtwach, which was some kind of uh, false flag set up to attract enemies of the country that they could be spied on uh, by Smuts's government, and uh, basically controlled opposition. But B.J. Foster was a spy for Smuts' government, and uh, he was obviously a man who could be bought. He was not loyal to the country, uh, and he was part of the assassination of our greatest prime minister, who had given South Africa a debt-free, unassailable economic position. can understand why we were so hated. And they said, basically, um, Dr. Voot was a man who could not be... Um, changed. He was too stubborn. And the only way that we could get get rid of him was to actually kill him. And so these quotes are put in here. And Stephen Goodson got extraordinary amount of information about uh, Harry Oppenheimer's involvement, the Ruperts, all the way through. And uh, here's some warnings from um, Dr. Wood. Dr. Wood gave this warning. He said, uh, may the white man, may the white nation of the world not lose the intellectual hold in any other way. If we abdicate on our, on our behalf, if we surrender in the long run, um, the flood of colored people will not only overwhelm us, but in years to come, it'll reach your lands and eventually overwhelm you too. What happens if whites lose their hold on a unitary state? Who runs the country? Not the coloreds, not the blacks. I do not want to insult the Bantu as a group, but I must seek justice for them. The fact is an experience in Africa proves if Bantus gain the authority over a country, it leads to a dictatorship of a small group of politically interested parties amongst them. They will be puppets for the international bankers. The black masses will be subject to them and will suffer far more than any suffering that they've alleged experienced under previous white or colonial governments. As far as other groups are concerned, they will without doubt be pushed backwards, perhaps quickly. The colored should not think they'd be the last to be excluded from the rule of or participation on or the benefits of a mixed society, they can easily be the first to be excluded. White groups will be respected the least by Bantu dictatorship and be the least needed. No, it will actually be the coloreds. And uh, so he warned again that for all races' sakes, we need to have separate development and that um, a one party or one man, one vote rule will inevitably lead to one party rule and um, social disintegration, increased crime, economic chaos, um, electricity going out, um, plumbing not being consistent, and all the things we've seen in Zimbabwe and sadly now in South Africa too. So Dr. Wood was warning about these things and he was offering an alternative future, which of course was heresy and blasphemy to New World Order, to the cult that we've got of the globalists. So. Um, there's a whole lot of fascinating details about the involvement of these insidious, subversive groups in not just the murder of, General, of Prime Minister Henry Wood, but in the subversion of South Africa and taking South Africa from being a first world nation, um, a great Christian nation where blasphemy was illegal, where pornography was illegal, where Bible education was mandatory in schools, uh, where the army was strong and where army began each day in Bible reading and prayer uh, to a country which is now 
secular humanist, uh, a cesspool for crime and violence and all kinds of perversion has been promoted by the state. So South Africa has fallen far and the murder of Henrik Witt was the turning point. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, um, very interesting study. And we're right on time almost. We've got about 30 seconds left, Peter, and I think I forgot to ask you this last time. Can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? My personal email is peter, P-E-T-R, at frontline, F-R-O-N-T-L-I-N-E dot R-R-G dot Z-A. So peter at frontline.org.za is my personal email. You can find Frontline on the web, www.frontlinemissionsa.org, SA short for South Africa, so frontlinemissionsa.org. And the book, um, Hendrik French for Wood, South Africa's Greatest Prime Minister by Stephen Mitford Goodson is available from Christian Liberty Books, uh, www.christianlibertybooks.co.za. Uh, you can also email admin at christianlibertybooks.co.za. And uh, I know that there is a publisher in Britain also available who who has uh, rights to print Stephen's good, Goodson's book so CLB can put people in touch there if they want to rather get a more local a source Thank you Peter and uh, you're also on Facebook if they just type in Peter Hammond they look for the picture of the lion is that correct? Yeah well actually I don't have a lion anymore I have myself with an AK-47 okay. in the Nubia Mountains uh, so um, oh, okay. I've, I've, I've put a different profile picture this time. I had the lines up for quite a while. It was a famous line in Zimbabwe who got shot. Um, and uh, so I, I had his profile picked for quite a while um, as my stand for um, nature conservation. Also, lines are one of my favorite animals, and I had a line as a pet when I was growing up. But nevertheless, um, yes, now it's, it's just a picture of me uh, with my rifle up in the Noob Mountains behind enemy lines. Thank you, Peter. Yes, and I just tried to cl- log on, you know, click on Facebook, but it's just messing about going round and round because I was just going to type in, oh, here we are, it's just finally come up. I'll just type in Dr. Peter Hammond, so here we are and see what comes up. And it comes up at the top. Uh, Peter Hammond, Director at Frontline Fellowship, Cape Town Baptist Seminary, sorry. So there you go, Um, just uh, very easy to find. And the links to all of Peter's websites, the link to uh, Stephen Mitford Goodson's book that we were covering today on Hendrik for Wood, and um, uh, and Peter's email as well are in the post for our show. So you don't need to wind back and scrabble for a pen. Just go to achshow.com and it's show number 2113. So on that note, I want to thank Peter so much for joining us today for a show entitled The Real Story of South Africa's Greatest Prime Minister, Hendrik Verwood, and Why He Was Assassinated, Part 2. I want to thank all of you for listening. Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. Until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye for now.